God, you just you get the impression that they had a blast making this movie. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, the 1987 comedy written and directed by John Hughes. I am honored to welcome back to the show, Jamie Williams. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. This was fun. It was, it was too long. It was almost been almost a year. Yeah, it so has. Weird. I think it was like April when we, when we talked about, um, and when we talked about Man on the Moon. Uh, it feels, it does feel like, it, it does feel like it's been a while. It's been, a lot has happened since then. So, uh, well, you, know what kills, you know what kills me about that is that we literally did the Man on the Moon discussion and like, I really like the show and cause I'm an egomaniac, I will actually listen back to it sometimes. I go, man, Robert did a great job and my fat ass was tolerable. But what amazes me is like you recorded that like at the end of April, and then I think you post like three weeks later because like you like to bang them out and like put them out, you know, strictly in a good pace. And I look at it and right you posted yours. I look up and see the nostalgia that Doug Walker did a, a Man on the Moon episode out of nowhere. I was like, what? Like when did was something in the water that all made us want to talk about Man on the Moon? It was so weird. It was so random. It is random. It's not often one of those. I mean, I know everybody was still in the whole 1999 thing last year, but it wasn't. It's not even one of those like Fight Club, The Matrix that people everybody was talking about either. And I think that was kind of a an underlying theme throughout our discussion. Is that why aren't people talking about this? Yeah, I mean, like it's just like yeah, we we picked something random. Like I wouldn't say obscure because it was a pretty that was a pretty big release at Christmas. But like if me and you had talked about like like Arlington Road, then we're going into obscure. Right. You know, or ride with the devil, shit like that. Then we're going into like, huh? Like, but what? I guess so weird. Yeah, that's so funny. Um, so, so as I mentioned, we're going to talk about planes, trains, and automobile automobiles this episode. So, before we get into the movie, I was I thought maybe it would make sense to talk a little bit about John Hughes and his his filmography. So, what is your experience with uh, John Hughes? Like, what was the first movie of his that you saw, and how did you kind of fall into his oeuvre? I guess, as it were. I don't really know what the first one I saw was, but uh, it was one thing where I, I reached adolescence around the time the internet really rearing its head in the mid '90s, and started looking at filmmakers. And John Hughes was a, you know, so somehow I got bumped into. I, I looked up Fountain Hughes, and I seen certain titles, and it's that fun thing of like going to the video store and roaming around, which is something I, I, I miss, and I envy those people who still have videos in their area. And there's a few out there. Um, I just discovered a lot of his titles. And they spoke to me like a lot of like a lot of teenage kids. It's just something about him for this guy who at the time was in his mid thirties and an ex marketing executive who turned into a screenwriter slash producer director. Just there was something about him that just spoke to kids of that moment uh, that can't be replicated and will never again. And like Breakfast Club, it spoke to me, man. Like I really love Breakfast Club, and I kind of I'm a little. I despise the cultural reappropriation of Hughes' work now because you have a lot of people who want to say, oh, he was a white guy in the mid-'80s, and, of course, he were about white people. I'm like, what, what, the fuck? what the fuck are you talking about? He wrote about young people, kids. That was his area. I mean, like, I should get the long duck dong thing with 16 candles. I right. kind of get it. You know, I think that was also, I think, it's too sensitive about that because that, that was a cartoon character. You know, I mean, like, you don't see Kenny want to not be complaining about it because he made his career. He's li- he's dining on that role. Okay. Uh, you know, let's, let's get his opinion on that one. But, like, we can't even like 16 Candles now because, like, we have to hate one singular part of it. When it was about, like, John Hughes writing about a girl whose family forgets about her birthday. Yeah, if you remember, if you watch 16 Candles, not only you're, if you rewatch it, one, it's so fucking funny. And two, every character is kind of crazy. There's not like a character that's not nutty in their own way, except for probably the dad played by Paul Dooley. I think he's the only non-crazy character in the whole movie. But it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's also not, you know, maybe by today's standards, a lot of these things from the 80s don't hold up. But it's also like, it's not entirely fair to crucify an entire movie uh, for it reflecting, the you know, the the 
politics of the day, I guess, in a way. You know what I mean? Yeah. So taking one element and being like, oh, that's now, that's, we, we're, we're going to forget about, we're going to tuck that movie away. Uh, it's like, well, at the time, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't an issue. People weren't oh. offended by things like that. So it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's, do I, do I experience that now going back and watching older movies that I grew up with and seeing something like, ooh, that element did not particularly age well, but I mean, I'm not going to stop watching the movie. I mean, you know, it's still, it's, it is what it is. I mean, it's, it, you, you see a lot of that any, anytime you see a movie really from before the last, I don't know, five to 10 years, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. So it's, it's unfair to kind of just sweep it away because of that. I agree with you on that point. It's just, it's just silly. That's the man's work, but let it speak for itself. And it spoke to a lot of people for a reason, man. Yeah. But by the same token, like not all of John Hughes spoke to me. Like, even though it's not really his, he didn't direct it. I've never been a pretty and pink guy. Right. Like that's one. I just, I can't, I can't, and I have such a distance from it. And like, that's one that the more and more time has gone away, I think more and more people are like, and I might be wrong on that one, but I feel like that's one where like people just felt like, um, what some kind of wonderful I've actually never seen. I've only seen bits and pieces of it. I've never cared. Again, that's Howard Deutsch, not John Hughes, but Hughes wrote Bruce. Um, and that was, you know, to, uh, some kind of wonderful was his answer to pretty impeaching and feeling that he had sort of done the wrong. He had, he had, um, wronged. He had formed, he, he picked the wrong ending in his mind. Mm-hmm. He felt like he was writing that wrong with, with some kind of wonderful. Uh, which I've never seen. Well, again, I finished it. I just that one never really. I never cared for that. Um, I mean, you talk about Hughes. You, you can't talk about John Hughes without getting into what came of John Hughes in that the '90s. And like, what's the movie that broke him? And for years, I used to think Home Alone was the movie that broke him. And I think I realized it might have been not so much Home Alone, but like maybe Uncle Buck's kind of the movie that broke him in a way, because that's the first one where he got predominantly still is the hijinks started to really amp up he directed uncle buck with candy who we're going to get to in a minute mm-hmm. and the about john candy he just really worked with his material the best i think if i had to guess i'd say some moment that hughes it sort of was like when it kind of flipped for hughes not home alone which i mean i like home i mean as a kid who was as a blonde-haired kid in 1990 who was six years old I got a lot of people thinking I was Macaulay Culkin, <laughs> and I had cousins who would exploit that. God bless. And I, I laugh at it now. But like, you know, I, in fact, watched Home Alone and Home Alone 2 this past Christmas on streaming on Disney Plus. And because um, I, I, my brother, I share my brother's account. Um, you know, if this time's up, so yeah, fuck them. But uh, they have enough money. Uh, but I, I liked it. I, I liked Home Alone perfectly fine. Two, not so much. Yeah, it's it's. I think people real don't realize a lot, a lot of his legacy. Like he's only directed eight movies over the course of his career, but when you count everything that he wrote or that he produced, like it's it's pretty extensive. The the it's a lot of stuff. The what was that? And it's a lot of stuff when it, you realize it is a lot of stuff. Yeah, it, it's it, he created an archetype for like as you mentioned, teen movies and just kind of shaped a certain form of comedy over the course of that like you know decade or whatever in the same way that the Fairley brothers did in the night like the moment like with something about mary although their formula already started with dumb and dumber into great success something about mary was next 10 years the maybe not 10 years but a good five years was the formula comedies were made for if that was everyone was trying to strive for something about mary to the point where you know the next year they made american pilot was you know the next something about Mary. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Yeah, it was like the the whole gross out humor was like uh, was the thing, and then for me with John Hughes, like I I grew up with Weird Science as uh, as a movie that yeah. I watched a lot as a kid, but I actually kind of missed out on most of his other movies. Like I didn't see Breakfast Club or Ferris Bueller or anything. I saw Uncle Buck as a kid too, actually, but I didn't see Ferris Bueller or Breakfast Club or Planes, Trains, and Automobiles until. I don't know, maybe seven years ago or something. Like a, when my really? wife and I got together, she was like, you haven't seen Ferris Bueller? She's like, we need to fix that. Um, what do you think? I love, I like them all. I like, I like all the movies, all those, all the, the aforementioned three movies. Um, I've seen She's Having a Baby and I didn't care for that as much. Like I've seen most of his directorial movies now. Uh, and I, I really like, actually, I think the one that we're going to pl- talk about, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, I think is possibly his best movie. Uh, I think it's, 
it's arguable and I guess we'll get into that. But, um, but no, and I, and you know, I, that was a huge blank, a blank spot for me as far as his filmography and just kind of appreciating everything that he uh, accomplished in a relatively short period of time. I mean, his first, the first movie he directed was 16 Candles in 84. And then his last one was Curly Sue. If anybody even remembers that, probably not. Uh, in 91. 91. So like in the span of like seven years, his whole directorial career took place. And then, yeah, like you said, but he kept, he kept making a lot of money. He was making, he was doing a lot of stuff in the nineties. Like he was producing and writing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like the 101 Dalmatians. I remember he, that was a pretty big, he wrote and produced that. He didn't direct it. Um, Dennis the Menace, lots of stuff. Plus the Home Alone Cools, all those he wrote. Like he, I mean, he wrote Home Alone 3. He wrote all those films. Mm-hmm. But tons of scripts and movies that never got made. Yeah. And yeah. you mentioned weird fans. I have to tell you, I, my first affiliate comment, the video store example, like, uh, I knew this, the USA Network TV show first. Yeah, yeah, I remember I that too. Shit. I literally had no idea of Weird Science of the movie. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I saw the logo. was the same from the show. I was like, wait, this is a movie? And like, I'm with you. I like Weird Science. That's another one they wouldn't make it. But. Oh, hell no. No, not at all. Um, but yeah, Kelly LeBrock back in the day. And uh, yeah, it's a whole thing. Um, yeah, so John Hughes was hugely impactful on, on film. And then... I'm glad that I finally got a chance to catch up with his. Do you have a Do you have a uh, a favorite of his? I guess directorial movies. It's like there's only eight of them, so the, the one we're mentioning. I think it's uh, yeah. I, I think it's not only movie. I think it's a. I, I would go as far. I would call it a perfect. Comedy. Yeah, like, I, I, that's, I would go that far. Yeah, I think it's a perfect comedy. I think it's constructed in such a perfect way that like. They come up with every conceivable way to explain that why these guys haven't like keep running into each other and the dynamics and how it builds upon itself with these two characters who were so diametrically opposed. And I, I that's the one that is the one that's the best. Is my favorite. It's it's also biased. It's my biased alert is bells are going off, but it's also my favorite comedy. Think about it, the older I get. And you know we think like how like every time Christmas comes along and we always have the there's always people who think they're being so clever talking about how like you know what's really a Christmas movie Die Hard Christmas movie <laughs> but people really, but like that's like it's part of the fun of people saying like talking about a lot of great Christmas movies I'm gonna go and answer the question right now what's the best Christmas movie of all time The Godfather So which one The Godfather I mean, that's that's what you said. Um, Okay. Yeah, the Godfather. I mean, they're just getting Christmas, so that counts. So okay, the Godfather. Technically, that's the question. You know, I mean, what, top that. I, I would tell somebody. <laughs> actually, technically, Citizen Kane. Actually, the flashbacks are Christmas, so you could say Citizen Kane is a Christmas movie. Yeah. So I, you could could one up me on that one. Actually, I never really. Like, yeah, I think people's definition of Christmas movie is very loose. Right. I mean, I always feel like yeah. for 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 it be a Christmas movie, I feel like it has to be a, about Christmas. It has to be. Essential to the that, plot, you know. True, <laughs> you know, yeah. Die Hard has nothing to do with like Christmas. Like, what does that have to do with Die Hard? Right, it's like, incidental it's, that it happens to be Christmas time. It is so incidental. Yeah, same thing with Little Weapon. You know, with Shane Black's whole filmography. Oh, that excellent. dude loves Christmas. Yeah, yeah that's uh, yeah, that's people's Christmas movie list. He loves Christmas. Like, I'd be shocked. If, like, I, I haven't seen The Predator, but I've seen that The Predator is set during Christmas. <laughs> Is it? I forget because that movie was very forgettable, <laughs> to be honest. So that's a, a knock against the Predator. Uh, it might be. <laughs> I I do like uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and things like that, and that is also a Christmas movie. So uh, that tends to be more often that's than good. not. I'm going to say yes. It probably is set at Christmas. But but my point being, I'm I'm long winded. I apologize. Uh, okay. We can alert. We can have the fun conversation at Christmas. But Thanksgiving, it seems like there is only one movie, mm-hmm. and it's Snowmobiles. And I, I'm probably wrong on this one, but it feels like it's the only Thanksgiving movie. And is it because they did such a great job? Or just like, I don't know, what's the circumstances? Because nobody's really, I'm sure a few people have tried. There, there have been Thanksgiving movies, to be fair. But in terms of like the really great one that everyone loves, like that's the iconic one, and that seems to be the only fucking one. Yeah. Because it's about Thanksgiving. My, my point stands. Yeah, and, no, it's true. And it's, it's that weird statistic that I think like, is in, I'm not mention in the movie, but apparently Thanksgiving has always been the worst time to travel in the United States. And I don't know why Christmas isn't worse. 
Mm-hmm. But apparently Thanksgiving is the worst. I don't get, I get it. I don't know. But, you know, um, I my first affiliation with that movie, and I don't know when I first saw it, but I can tell you, and this is something about our generation. I'm, a, 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 I'm about to get a, essentially off topic, and I apologize again ahead of time for you good kids out there listening. Uh, it was one of those movies, the VHS like recorded movie that me and you, I'm sure you had a lot of those yourself mm-hmm. in our generation had in general, where you take it off television and you watch it like a hundred thousand times. So we had a copy of Trains and Automobiles from, I wish I had the tape, but I remember when it was, it was from the U.S. Network on Thanksgiving day, 1996. It had all the commercials on it. And I remember because they said Thanksgiving from U.S. Network. And I know it's 1996 because they had commercials for Space Jam. Nice. That one's it. So, like I, so that's how I know. And we had that tape, and we would like we would just play that. We wouldn't even rent it. Why bother? We got the tape from TV. Yeah. Although you're really missing, you know, one of the funniest scenes in the movie, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, on version. But um, that that was where I first that that had to have been one of the first times I'd seen it. And I don't know, just I, I, it was that movie that you kind of went back to, and that's that movie that I always find myself going back to every Thanksgiving. At some point, I watched it to the point where there's a wonderful movie theater. I'm going to point now in New Orleans uh, down here called Britannia Movie Theater, which is an old school palace. It is amazing. And they were supposed to play Planes and Automobiles on Sunday morning. And unfortunately, there was a rights issue last second. So my brother and I walk in Sunday morning at 9 a.m. ready to play Planes and Automobiles. And the owners were lovely people said, Sorry guys, can't. We had a dispute with Paramount. Can't play it, so we missed out this year. But I, I really, but I've never. I missed out on seeing it on the big screen. I would love to see that in a big screen with an audience. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen it on the big screen either. I think um, I feel like we were like basically on the very edge of, of getting into in depth on the movie itself. So why don't we just go ahead and listen to a little bit of the trailer for Planes, Trains, and Automobiles right now. During holiday travel, some people get delirious. Some get delayed. And some get Del Griffin. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. Neil Page got all three. I was on my way home to spend a nice holiday with my family. Instead, I'm in a motel bed with a stranger. So instead of Thanksgiving with his family, he's spending three days with the turkey. Two happy clams just whistling down the road. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, they're the Martonic family. Paramount Pictures presents Steve Martin. You ever been to Hawaii? Yeah. You see Don Ho while you were there? See the second show, that's the best one. Is that right? Yeah. John Candy. Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. In a new film by John Hughes. Planes, trains, and automobiles. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hell of a game, hell of a game. That was a little bit of the trailer for Planes, Trains, and Automobiles from 1987. Writer-director John Hughes. So, uh, Jamie, you mentioned this is your favorite comedy. I'm assuming that's why you wanted to talk about it. So what do you think about uh, this film makes it so special, I guess? I think we kind of skated on that a little, but let's get a little, let's, let's get a little full, uh, full in-depth on that. It was a movie that my dad and I would watch all the time, and uh, there's that bonding experience of like liking stuff dad likes. It's just a funny movie. Like It's just something so heartfelt, and the older you get, the more you can appreciate it. Performance of John Candy and Steve Martin as well, but mm-hmm. uh, and if like it's so hard to win Oscars for comedy, but it just it kills me like that. At least get a nomination. God, wouldn't it have been amazing if he had somehow got an Oscar nomination. I'm not saying he should have won, which would have been great, but like that's that's the kind of performance. That's the once in a lifetime performance for John Candy. And I remember the Siskel and Ebert review. And they said John Candy was like Robin Williams, a, a, a comedian who they really liked, kept saying he doesn't, there's not the right fit. They can't put the right material with him. And when that movie came out, it's on YouTube, you can find it. They say, okay, finally, he has found the right vehicle for him. This is the perfect role. It's funny as hell. We need more of this. And it's so like 
encompassed John Candy that everything we love about him as as a person. And everyone said he was that guy. He was the guy you thought he was in the movies. This big, lovable guy everyone got along with, who was not the life of the party, but made just knew everyone on a first-name basis. He was that guy. And we only had him for a little bit, but I still miss him. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that if he had if he had lived past, you know, 1994, missing an amazing career. Who I I, I kind of doubt it. I mean, it would have it would have meandered off like most careers do. It's just the nature of the it's the nature. Of, but we, you know, I just God, man, I miss him. Like see those comedies. Like God damn, he's so heartfelt as Dale Griffin. And I'll go even further. I know Dale Griffin. You know, that you think are sort of abrasive. And can be not put upons, but maybe a little too, you know, like too, like too personable, and they get too much into you. But they're good people at heart. That's what just kills me. It's like they're, I know people like this. But they're good people. Mm-hmm. Like he talked about that guy just completely connected. I don't know what it is, man. And I got to tell you, you talking about John Hughes earlier. The story goes that one of the reasons that John Hughes retired is that John Candy died, and that kind of just like. It just stuck out of the room. And he was so spent. He just said, I'm done. I can't. I this is like he thought he was gonna be doing like the next ten years of movies with John Andy. And that just kind of like knocked him knocked his socks off. Yeah, I, I I do think that, that that was probably a factor in it. And John I this I think in the Ebert uh the Skill and Ebert review, they even say something about how both Steve Martin and John Candy in this movie, they kind of, they're basically just kind of in playing, they're embodying like themselves, like their personas and they're, and they're yeah. so, you, you, I feel like you see both of them at, at their best in this movie. Like, I feel like for both of for both actors, I feel like this is probably one of their best performances. And I think, I believe if I'm, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, that Steve Martin has even said that this was one of the, the like, one of his favorite films that he's ever made. And, and one he of the ones, he's, yeah, one of his most, most proud he said of. It, he, said, he said it's his favorite. Yeah. He said it's his favorite of the product, the way the product turned out and just making it. There's another great video on YouTube. It might not have been YouTube. It's definitely the DVD of them doing a press conference to promote the movie. They're, I don't know if they're at an actual airport, but like they're at a mock-up airport and they're doing press with each other. And the way that Hughes and Martin Andy are bouncing off each other, you can't fake that shit, man. That's real. Mm-hmm. And God, you just sit in your head like, would they have ever like done another movie together? Because sometimes they're such a, so perfect, like a comic duo, and they do like a slew of movies together, right? Like, why didn't they do a bunch of them? Mm-hmm. And it was like, maybe then they knew, like, if we ever do it, we can never work together again because it can never be as good. It would have to be as good as this movie, and there's just no way it ever can be. Right. But God, they were so perfect together. They really Steve were. Steve Martin's a funny guy. Like, I love Steve Martin. I'm not, you talk about movies earlier. that I, There are so many Steve Martin that I have not seen. I've only seen some of them. But, like, I, I, next one, like, my favorite one is more obscure. It's Bowfinger. Like, I'm not seeing. Oh, here's awesome. Yeah, it's another great 99 movie. Uh, coming soon on the Cushable Podcast. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, but, like, God, Steve Martin, I don't feel like he gets his due. Yeah, and, in, and even in Bowfinger, it's Steve Martin and, and Eddie Murphy, another, like, tremendous comedic talent, at kind of operating at the top of his game as well. Mm hmm. It was peak Eddie, in my opinion, right when he had rejuvenated his career and repackaged himself as a family friendly guy in a good, or he let that go to hell. Um, <laughs> but, you know, no, no one's perfect. But God, like you just, uh, God, it's, it's just such a, I don't know. It just, it's, it, the circumstance that was so funny, like so perfect. I still quote lines in that movie, besides the, like just, of those two pillows. Like I literally had a situation one time where um, we, we went through, you know, the scene at the end of the movie when like towards the end, when like he's the wrong way that happened to my dad and I, Oh wow. we actually went, we were leaving somewhere with another older gentleman and his wife and we were going in our car and he went in his car and he literally went down the wrong road and my dad gunned it and like we're waving at him when it finally got over i looked at my dad and said you're going the wrong way and what like we quoted we started quoting the movie so like it's just like it's just that personal thing i i, I remember dad to this day says he has never 
scream louder in laughter at any line of any movie is during that scene. And when they go, you're going the wrong way. And, and you know, Steve Martin rolls, Neil rolls the thing down. He goes, what? You're going the way. He looks over at uh, Dale and goes, he said going the wrong way. What? Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Steve Martin says, yeah, how would he know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, so now it's so goddamn funny. <laughs> that whole scene, by the way, talking about perfect comedy, the moment scene starts with them in the rental car to the ending where, you know, the thing catches on fire. That's like, that's not 10 minutes, is it? Bill, it might be about 10 minutes, but that is absolutely the way you pop one, you keep building. Uh, just not the tensions, but you just one upping yourself in terms of the comedy. It just gets funnier and funnier and funnier. Like to the point where, like, for years, my avatar on Facebook was John Candy Devil Suit. Which, <laughs> 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 and I actually was such a dork, I put file photo underneath it. <laughs> Very stupid. I, that, <laughs> I feel like that's also the moment that that the comedy gets probably the broadest because it does have the oh. the devil suit, the the skeletons. And they're like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, funny. But yeah, I mean, like, oh god, shit. I can't like it's one of those movies that you, like we're talking about it late, but like you kind of want people to see it for themselves. Like you don't want to give it all away. But if you're looking at this, you have seen it, right? Exactly. Um, You've seen it. I mean, hopefully you have. You know, I don't. I hate when people say "soul alert." Like the movie's like thirty-five years old, or 30, 32 years old now. So, like, you know, you've seen it by now. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, God, I think it's a perfect comedy. Like, I just don't think that he's has ever been better. Like that was something like that. And you know, he he, it was his first adult bearing movie too. I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna say that. It was, yeah, I think it's after a string of. Yeah, teen all, all teen movies, pretty much. I'm looking at because I have his filmography up. It's like Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, even some of the ones that he, you know, wrote and or produced, and like Pretty in Pink and things like that. Like, yeah, it was the first one that focused entirely on adult perspective. Like, you could say, like, yeah, a European Vacation, which he did write right. and produce, and was right. uh, that was. I mean, it's, it's it's weird that like a producer was a writer producer was his series. You never think of the vacation movies as. Harold Ramis's movies, even though Harold Ramis made the first one. You know, he's one of the reasons I'm not even a big vacation guy personally. Yeah. But I like, you know, that's why that movie works for a lot of people is Harold Ramis. Not, you know, take away from Chevy to anybody. But um, yeah, it was the first one where John Hughes went into adult territory and it seems so perfect for him. I, I don't know. Maybe she's having a baby not doing well, kind of broke him. Excuse me. Because like the very next movie is Uncle Buck, where it's an adult, but it's mostly a kid movie. It's kids, kids, kids. It's like, and he started amping it up with the kids. That's why I always think Uncle Book might have been the one that kind of ruined him, mm-hmm. not Home Alone. Because he didn't produce Home Alone. Oh, yeah, I mean, he didn't direct Home Alone, Chris Columbus. Right, right. Yeah, that's more of Chris Columbus's movie than John Hughes's, <laughs> respectfully. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think you just have this pitch perfect script matched with these two comedic powerhouses. And I don't, I don't know, it's just something about their persona of, Steve Martin being the sort of like high strung, like irritable, you know, lashing out, sort of seething guy, um, and kind of a bit of a curmudgeon. And then John Candy just being like warmth and ob- you know, warm and obnoxious and loud, but well, but with a with a good heart. Like I, I don't know. It's just it's like the classic the kind of salesman. odd couple thing, I guess. Yeah, and the ultimate salesman, the guy who could sell, yeah. uh, you know, I. Ice cones to Eskimos. Like you could totally agree that great montage of him yeah, selling the, you know, uh, the the uh, the shower curtain with a bunch of people and him like fucking doing it like like a hundred bucks or something. Like oh my god, which I was gonna do. I was I was thinking about this the other day because we were getting ready for this podcast. I was thinking, I'm thinking, is that an occupation? <laughs> was that ever a real occupation? A uh, shower ring like, salesman? Yeah, was that a real thing? Like, I was thinking about that because you know when we moved into our apartment. We had to buy a shower curtain ring. It's like, yeah, it was eight, <laughs> nine months ago. And it just made me sit there thinking, like, wait, who's a, who would sell this shit? Like, how do you, we went to Walmart and bought it. Right. Like, how does he, like, and I know it's 1987 and it's, I, and I mentioned disbelief, but I wonder, like, was that actually an, an actual occupation at some point? Or am I just a gullible idiot, which is probably the latter? <laughs> it feels, that was a real thing. It feels like a real movie job, but then again, he does yeah. say that. 
he does say that he works for a larger company and uh, as a salesman for the shower ring division or whatever. So oh, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. I guess in you know in today's like corporate run world, then you you know maybe you'd have to sell it wholesale to different stores to carry it and to, so that the Walmart would carry it in stock your brand of shower curtain ring or something. I don't know, but uh, it's it's the perfect sort of. A sort of movie comedy job that that sounds realistic enough, but also just <laughs> just ridiculous enough as well. Because Neil is a madman. He's an executive. He's a marketing executive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, in eighties, uh, you know, and it, it has the you know the often forgot about post credit sequence where he like, totally can't make up his mind about what to fucking fix. The three designs, and he's still sitting there. Have you seen that scene? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's still it's like a weird like what huh like that's a weird like way to end it. Your heart is lit. You're in awe moment, and then has that bit. If you stay during the credit, you're like what? That's a weird one. <laughs> well, Ferris yeah, Bueller. I mean, yeah. it was like the, the the progenitor of the whole thing. So I guess John Hughes sort of, I guess popularized at least the post credit scene long before Marvel. You know, everyone feels like they have to have one. Yeah, I mean, like. He, I'm trying. To, yeah, him and Joe Dante were the two ones that made. It. I remember Joe, some of the early Joe Dante. The Howling had a post credit sequence, if I remember correctly. Uh, those are always, those are fun. Like you know, not like not requirements, but yeah. I mean, they're part of the fun experience of the movies, you know, which they are just filler movies. They're not real movies. Sorry, sorry, film Twitter. They're not real movies. <laughs> um, but they're fun. Yeah, it's yeah, part it's- of the experience. You sit there and wait for extra scene, part of the part of the experience, and you go into expect. But um, yeah, um, sometimes. Yeah, and some, like, okay, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, uh, you first. Sir. I was going to say on the on the post credits thing before we moved off from the, on from that. Sometimes it's they're worth the now like what ten minute wait. Sometimes they're not, but you have to hand it to Marvel at least for that. Uh, what was it Spider Man Homecoming where they basically trolled the audience and Cap comes out and like. Oh, patience. Sometimes you're going to wait for something and it's not going to be worth it. And then it became a meme. So yeah, you wait of course now. it did. Oh, of course it did. You can't, yeah, I mean, like, now everything's a meme. But there's some weird meme, like, just to prove you that you cannot tell what's going to be a meme. I kept waiting. I'm really getting off topic here. But, uh, comment like, you can't tell what's going to be a meme. So I always thought that one was going to become a meme about Willow. But not uh, now. I, mean, I don't know if you know what scene I'm talking about. The scene where they transform the heroes into pigs. Uh huh. Oh yeah. Which is so fucking horrifying. And you know, I'm still thinking this is going to be an internet thing in any fucking minute. And like that just never did. I, I don't. I don't know how it did. That's terrifying. Like one actually on YouTube did scene and played it in slow motion. And it's even scarier than you remember, if you remember that sequence. Like Val Kilmer with a pig nose screaming with a pig voice in slow motion is terrifying. I need to go back and watch it now in slow motion. I've saw that I've seen that movie like in the last few years, but it's been a while. So maybe maybe there's still a chance for the Willow uh the Willow memes to to explode. Oh, yeah. They're well, doing their Yeah, they're doing another one or something. Here they are. Well, you, you know, you talk about, like, um, you're going to edit up stuff. It'll, it'll be tight. But you, you talk about how tight he is. It amazes me is that when he played that trailer, that trailer is, I don't want to exaggerate, I would say there's a good 40 to maybe 50% of material in that trailer that is not in the movie. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of stuff in that, like, line, scene, that just don't make it into the cut of the movie. And I have always been fascinated. But, uh, apparently, Hughes, the first cut that Hughes pulled was something like, Three hours. It was like a three-hour cut of the movie. The movie is what ninety minutes. Like yeah, it, ninety-two it's minutes. It's really, yeah, it's really. It is air tight. There is no fat in that movie. There's not a ounce of fat on that phone. And it amazes me that you can come with a three-hour cut. And you know they did the Breakfast Club on Criterion, and like uh, he had uh, his cut of like he's had his rough cuts of Betamax tapes for years that his family have just held in their mission bathroom. And I keep waiting for like someone. That's another one why I feel like Criterion should do Plain Strange and Envelope. And I, I get the importance of doing Breakfast Club. It's a commercial decision to do that. Mm-hmm. But like, where's Plain Strange, man? Like, 
I heard a rumor that Ferris Bueller is actually going to get a Criterion release. I'm like, I could see that. Yeah. Like, I would put all of John Hughes' movies as, as Criterion release, obviously. But, like, I could see you can make the argument like Ferris Bueller should be like a, 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 a um, Criterion release. Yeah. Well, then I feel but like I would, if, uh, after Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller, this would be the, at the very least the, the next up at that point. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, and I didn't even like buy the Breakfast Club Blu-ray. Like, I just mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not to say this, but like, I went on YouTube. Someone posted the deleted scenes from the Breakfast Club from the Blu-ray, and like, and even deleted scenes that I've heard about for years that are still on that Blu-ray. So I don't know why they aren't on there. Like the stuff that it, that they shot and cut out. Apparently, that was Jesus Stiles. The Breakfast Club was another one where there was like an insanely long cut, and he cut that thing down to the bone, and it works perfectly. But like. Yeah, just rewatch the trailer, man. Tons of lines. And of course, you know, if you've seen the T V version, you know the the one scene that we definitely know is in existence, the the uh, the uh was uh the, them having dinner on the airline, which was cut for time. Which is a perfectly funny scene. Yeah, I think I, I feel like we should just just kind of go back and forth with some of our some of our favorite scenes from the movie because we talked about the dynamic between the two of them. We talked about the performances. There's also a lot of really great um like uh, cameos and character actors that show up in this movie that I realized this time. And you have Michael McKean as the, the cop that pulls him over and Ben Stein early on. I would say Ben Stein is the one that immediately comes to mind. Yeah. Kevin Bacon is the, the one that beats Steve Martin to the cab. A lot of, a lot of use like uh, regular players, basically. I wonder how the Kevin Bacon thing came. Cause in my head and they've never clarified what happened with that. So, he planes, trains, and automobiles first, I mm-hmm. think. I've heard, I've heard different stories. I've heard some people say, so he made She's Having a Baby first. And then planes, trains, and automobiles came together so fast. It actually shot done, and that was like, supposedly, She's Having a Baby was sitting on a shelf for like a year before Paramount Fox it out. Like That was not a movie that they wanted to put out for whatever reason. I, I, I like that movie perfectly. Fun. That's the one that apparently meant the most to him personally. But supposedly the story goes that like, Kevin Bacon worked with, like, he did, she's having a baby first. And then he was, and he said, hey, man, if you ever want me to want, like, if you ever want me for anything else ever again, call me. I'll totally show up. And he says, as a matter of fact, I have, and that's how that's seen. And, uh, and, like, he only shot it for a day, just came in, got in and out. And it's a memorable moment that we all think about, is that cha- the wordless chase between Steve Martin. And you talk about, like, things I like, uh, Robert. I don't, like talking about like what a curmudgeon Steve Martin is. I love the audacity because I rewatched this movie yesterday. The audacity that Neil Page has is to go to the fucking lawyer and go, "Sir, can I please have your tub?" Like, <laughs> you. he got it. He's got the right to haggle you in that case. And he's like, you know, oh, I hope you have a good happy holiday. Well, this will help. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, Dude, like you're a douchebagger for having him do that. Like maybe he had somewhere to go. Like you don't know. Like, fuck you. Man. You should have just listened to your pal. Remember his friend says, "Come with me." Like he was going to go with. The, He's like, "You're going never going to gonna make the six. Yeah, that's right. He says, "You're never." Yeah, that's right. You never. And he says, "Look, I'm going out at eight. Hang out with me in the office. It'll be later. We'll get a beer. We'll hang out, and we'll actually make it." Oh no, I, ha- I promised my wife I'd get to there. I get that logic. You want to don't piss off a wife. I get that. But you also have to tell your wife, honey, it's horrible. I'm going to make... You see that shot where he, he's in the wrong line and he tilts his head over. This dude is not getting there. It's an act of God. He even got there on time somehow. And he, he missed, still missed his flight. Like, oh my God. The, the ball's on Neil Page, which I think tells you about the character. I think that tells you he just thinks that... He could just, you know, pay his way out of anything. Like he's a smart guy. He's a businessman. He's college educated. He's he has gotten to that position for a reason. He's not there for just no fucking reason. Right. He's not he's some talentless schmuck. Well, I mean, there's plenty of people who get who fail exactly. But he, Neil Page is not one of them. And it just speaks so well to his character the way he was able, like, thought he could just. This was okay to do that. Was to go to a guy who just got a cab and say, "No, give me your cab." Or that is a good of your heart. But it also speaks to Dale Griffin, who was street smart. We just like see a moment, you know, pack the thing, and out he's gone. And he doesn't think a thing of it. Hey, it was his cab. It didn't matter. Yeah. Because you know, remember he, he that's that's one of my other favorite shots. And they recreate the the door 
you know, he's like playing in his mind. Like he sees Neil and he's like mm-hmm. the door recreated next to him. I love this. The funny image. Like, uh, you know, I know, you know, I like this. I, it, it's very vo- high volume for those characters. Yeah. Very, very funny stuff. Yeah. There's a certain element of their dynamic too, that I think is a little bit of a, uh, you know, a class uh, conflict. Whereas between, I mean, not even a little bit of an element. It's it's, a, it's as revealed by the end when you find out what Dell's real situation is. I, I think it's very much that one person has has kind of everything that they've worked hard for. Yeah, but that it kind of has a certain level of comfort and and therefore entitledness. And the other one is scrappy and street smart and and thinks on his feet and is like, oh, I'm gonna say that you know these are these are all oh, the famous uh, earrings of so and so, and I'm gonna like get some money together so we can get out of here, or I'm gonna react quickly in a situation and call the 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 motel because i know that this is the way this is gonna you know I, i've seen how these play this situation plays out i think that's interesting to see how they re how they each react to every, any given situation it's 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 really telling it's either they're having the scene where they're they break it they they come a little mini bar and he sits there and he goes you know what i'm dead and buried the only thing that's ever gonna be looking ever remember by are some rings on a shower but that's my legacy right really poignancy to that. You remember Steve Martin takes a shower, first takes a shower and he looks up and he sees the rings and he just kind of nods says, alright. Like nod, like nodding like before they get into their comic situation. It's kind of like a nod of respect. Like, okay. But he's, this guy works for a living. Yeah, he has, he has the other line that is echoed in the montage in the movie when Dale starts to connect the dot, uh, Neil connects the dot because I'm afraid I've been away too home for long. He just shoots off. I haven't been home in years. Mm-hmm. And he said they don't even have. And he says I don't have a home. Does he literally not have a home? And maybe he doesn't. You know, some people are just like he just can't go back. Like his wife's been dead for six years, so that's nineteen eighty six, eighty, seventy nine, eighty. His wife's been dead. We don't know how old he is, but we. His wife looks old in the picture, so you don't really know how old Neil's supposed to be, mm-hmm. uh, or Dale's supposed to be. Thing. So there's a certain sense of sadness. Most like child was. And he has no family, just like his friends or his family, like his clientele family. He's like, what does this guy do all year long? Like, what was he going to do if he, like, what was he going to do if he never met Neil? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I mean. You know, it's like fate them together. And I, in, in my heart of hearts, I always think, in, and it's also like, I think like, what would it, like, you don't want to see a sequel, God, no. But you see in the story that continues in your head, I think that, for the love of their lives, those two guys are good friends. Yeah. And they and they keep in touch. And it does become a thing where he comes over for the holidays. And they always laugh. And they so that time they just they have like a couple of beers and they just laugh their ass off at like the car or the hand up his ass. <laughs> or they probably <laughs> I, I think his wife <laughs> Yeah, there's there are several classic scenes in this movie that are like you can that just you just check watch on youtube just randomly just, that stand on their own oh, as God. just brilliant pieces of comedic film filmmaking i mean you, you know the thing with and the, the car the, and the sting i think the sting in the in the score sells that those aren't pillows right now that sells it it's a horror movie for like two seconds but that's just like that's and, and you know, like you said, they're going because he was. The story goes, Hughes was stuck in traffic. I mean, he was stuck in an airport, um, not overnight for a for a couple of hours back during his day, his advertising days, back in the, I guess the late mid late seventies. And he hadn't came up with the idea like what if, what would have happened if I didn't get home? Like if I was actually there overnight. And like that's the idea kind of came and you know extrapolated that idea and it morphed into this comedy. Like where the mind comes up with these ideas. And of course, unfortunately, we can never talk to Mr. Hughes, obviously. And frankly, if Mr. Hughes was still around, it was, I won't say curmudgeon, but he did not talk to people. Mm-hmm. He did not. In fact, the only commentary he ever gets the Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and it was a, a weird, like, how did he sign off on that? And he just did it on a lark. And I, it's kind of hard to find that commentary now. But they don't even repurpose it anymore. They don't even put it out. Hmm. That's a guy I wish we could like hear from. Like yeah. have him sit down and like have his thoughts on a movie. Like that was like, and we'll never get that perspective anymore. Like because, and his, unfortunately, his wife passed away. Uh, I think last year, his widower. Like she's gone too. So it's like even getting the perspective that like that's one of those things where like it was so 
uh, bare bones watching that DVD, which it was already like not insulting. That's unfair. I mean, they, you know, these DVD, I, I have friends who used to do the DVD special features and they said like, look, I mean, we're working on the people have access to. We ask everybody and a lot of them say no. And, you know, you look at the, one of the planes, trains, and automobiles, those aren't pillows edition, which I hate that title, by the way. Uh, and they, who, who's on that one? It's not many people. Like they didn't even be Mark. Like they got like Michael McKeon. Um, God, who else? Was that it? Just Michael McKeon? Like, I'm blank. I'm blanking out. Like who's the actress's name? I'm blanking out what her name is. I, I feel like in my Layla Roberts plays uh, Layla Roberts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. She's she goes in an interview because she was a staple for. Uh, she was one of uh, Hughes' staples for a while, famously in um, uh, Plane Trains Normal. Oh, not um, Ferris Bueller. I think it's literally just the two of them, and like maybe one or two other people. Like, so they're working with what they have. You just can't find anybody now. We don't have that perspective anymore. It's sad because I, I mean, I, I certainly am. I'm curious. Like, I want to. I'm always fascinated by the behind the scenes of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. And I feel like you know that that uh, I think we talked about this on the Man on the Moon episode, but that that whole special features thing is sort of dying off a little bit as physical media is waning to uh you know streaming and digital copies and all of that stuff unfortunately no there'll always be i mean thank god there'll always be enough there's enough of a market for people like uh shop three and um and, and criterion aero video but like that's just three labels yeah that's it but it, it, it feels like that's it back but for a while it was like everyone was opening their vaults and special edition dvds for everything and now it's just you know, you don't see it anymore. Like even, you know, I think there was a story last week about Warner's and Universal are actually going to join forces to make DVDs together. That's depressing. Like, yeah, that is. Like, wow. I, I, yeah, yeah. I like, are you serious? Like, I couldn't believe when I read that. I, I mean, DVD, I mean, physical media will never way. There'll always be a market for it. Because I, I mean, I, I, in fact, the older I get, it's hard to watch a movie on streaming. I have to have a physical copy to watch. Right. But they're not, like you said, they're not putting as much effort into features anymore. So you'll get the DVD or the Blu-ray and it'll be a movie and like some very canned bit of marketing. And that'll be about it. Maybe a trailer. Yeah. Maybe commentaries, nothing in depth, really. Just kind of like the same recycled interviews on every little feature. It's just like it's been kind of obnoxious, actually. Yeah, we've gone. We we, we found ourselves going right back to where we were with the DVD boom of 2000. But we're right back to that point. It's so weird. You know, it's, it's, Blu-ray is just the new laser disc. It's just that niche, like, films market that's never really going to take off. Yeah. And that's how much longer Blu-ray's got, maybe 10 years? Let's talk about, um, well, I, I wanted to point out, too, that I, I feel like what makes this movie really work and why I think this, this to me, is really, like, kind of the best form of comedy in a way is that they're, these are both real people that could easily kind of be cartoons of themselves like they could have he could have gone the long duck dong way and had this guy be so ridiculously obnoxious and messy and whatever and this other one so uptight that he just became you know two just two annoying people but that he humanizes both of them so like we understand why steve martin would be annoyed with him and we understand why john candy wouldn't understand uh why why dell wouldn't understand neil being like to his you know perceived as rude as he sees him or intolerant like there's that whole scene where he says about that um but so they're they're both basically real people put and thrown into these kind of heightened situations with the car being the most uh the most heightened of all that the fact that i like i even made a note of like how did this car even drive at all that they were able to sit in and drive it to the the motel it's like (laughs) wow do you do you think this vehicle is safe to be on the road (laughs) yes Yes, officer. <laughs> the sincerity of that line. Yes, I do. <laughs> but you know what? That speaks to Griffin because he's also like a bullshit artist. Like right. his sales, he thinks like I can. I can sell this. He thinks he can maybe get away with it. Of course, he does. Like, no, get the fuck off the highway with this thing. <laughs> oh my god. That's yeah, another funny image I was thinking of, like them in the, them in the back of the car with like their. He's frozen, and the dog about to bite their ball. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> oh my god, that was funny. 
They're talking later. I think it's the mini bar scene where they're talking about where he's like about about being in the car and he's comparing. He's saying he felt like a whopper that he's going to have like grilled lines on his ass and. Uh, yeah, it's so funny. I feel like yeah, the, the line I always like the most that makes me laugh with that scene. He goes, "I feel like I'm in summer camp," and John Candy drunkenly peeks his head of the bathroom and goes, "Hey!" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> So but that's that bond. That bond is real, man. Like, like the day that was a real friendship started. Like after it was over. Like you know, that's that's what happens. That's the ending. That that last shot sums it up. It, it makes perfect sense. Like he opens up his home, his family to this guy who he feels is like I've gotten to know. Like, that shot of him smiling, man. It's so it's so tender. It's so sweet. A little not heartbreaking, but it's like it's what he wanted. He just needed to be like, he didn't have a family and he has it now. Right. But that's what the guy wanted. I was like, oh my God. Like that was like, you could not have ended a more perfect note. I mean, and you know, you don't really get it spelled out until the very end, obviously, but there's a lot of hints as to what's going on with him. I'm thinking specifically right. about when he's outside, like in the car, uh, in, the, in the cold and he's talking to his wife. He's like, uh, how am I ever going to wake up? And to your point earlier, where it just seems like either he doesn't want to go back to whatever, wherever he used to live because of the memory of his wife, or yeah. he just, you know, can't, I don't know. It sounds like he just can't move on. He's been stuck for eight years, just kind of as living like a nomad basically, because he doesn't know how to, that was his, you know, that was, she was his rock. She was his anchor. She was his, foundation and so he's just kind of been i guess floating around I mean, selling things and, yeah. and living life that way that's I mean, that's the story of the movie like him learning to find his way, like getting out of his hole because i mean like you know i mean god forbid i mean that's what happens to me like, I, don't, I don't i don't know what i would do though my my, my lovely love was i don't know what i'd do with that anna yeah yeah i mean who knows who knows how we're how we react to tragic situations like this and they don't know the details about how she died it's just that she's dead that's all you need to know he's like he you know he his wife is dead. He loved her with all of his soul and he couldn't bear with it. And he just, he coped to the best way he could. You know, that big, think about it, like that big, that big suitcase he carries is, it's a funny image. And you realize like what he's carrying is he's carrying his home. What he's carrying him inside that is him. Those are all pieces inside it. And the, and the service is a very funny gag. But you realize like in a tender moment when he's on, He's opening that stuff up and the scene in the hotel room. He gets out the picture of his wife. And like he just had all these things. And that's the last remnants of his home left of that, of who Dale Griffin is as a person, his wife, and all that. Really touching. Like it, it gets me teary. I was thinking about it now. How, how, like, how wonderful that stuff works. Yeah. Yeah. And watching it this time, I, I had the similar reaction to, as you mentioned earlier, to being thinking that not only is this John Candy's best performance, but this should have been something that he should have gotten like best supporting actor nomination or whoever you want to say is lead or supporting. It's I feel like with category fraud running so rampant, they probably oh, pushed him in supporting. <laughs> but um, I'm so that they still get away with that. I know. I, know. I like, I like bringing book, like giving it to Mahershala Ali. It's like, he's the code. What are you talking right. about? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dude, like you want to give it an actor, go for actor. Consider how weak that feel was. They gave it a fucking Rami Malik. I'm, I'm getting off topic. Yeah, no, I didn't. Uh, I mean, I don't care for Bohemian Rhapsody either. So, I mean, that's. Oh, we uh, talked about that in the last show. That's right. I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyway, but yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I mean, just they're always going to frown upon comedy roles. They very rarely will get the stick out of their ass and acknowledge how hard this is to be. I mean, it's hard to do drama too. I mean, that's not to take away yeah. from how hard those actors work, but it's like it's a different level. And you know, I mean, how? I mean, I, you could probably count with two hands how many committee performances one had. Yeah, I one And if there's anyone that should have been that should have, and I'm not saying when, but nominated, it should have been John Candy in Plenty of Chains and Obiels. And hey, man, he, he he had a very rare, wonderful, dramatic turn in JFK. It's a, a bit part. It's two scenes, but he's phenomenal in that movie. That's also one of my favorite movies. And I'm not going to say that he steals JFK because that would be hyperbolic on my part, but he's one of the performances I think of movie. How many people Oliver Stone managed to cram into that frame with that little shooting timetable and to get a great, great John Candy performance like that, that we had never seen from him before. 
Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll drop another great John performance that's under scene is Only the Lonely. Yeah. With the, yeah, with uh, with Ali Sheedy and uh, Jim Belushi, the great thespian. But I mean, that's a movie that like never got enough love. Yeah, another John Hughes produced, uh, Chris Columbus directed. Produced that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The loose remake of Marty, one of my favorite movies from 1955. Gilbert Mann's a, a comedy, a dramedy, if you want to call it. The Ernie Bornine. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Something, something with Candy and uh, and Hughes, where Hughes just really knew how to tap into. Uh, the range that I think John Candy brought on screen. I mean, and and I feel like if this movie came out, you know, later or came out more recently, I feel like it would, they probably would have pushed him for awards consideration. I mean, he, he has an Oscar clip in the middle of this movie. The whole I like me scene is an Oscar clip. So, I mean, it's like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. He's, how, got a bunch, he's got several Oscar clips. I feel like that's no. probably the most obvious, the whole way he's got like a long speech. Um, but yes, yeah, he's got yeah, he's so great in this. And Martin is too, and Martin's been great in other things, but it's also it's also I think because we were we had a shorter period of time with John Candy that he is he does emerge as the standout in this movie and that it allows him to do comedy and drama and he's the the heart and soul of the movie in multiple different ways. Uh it's yeah, he's it's great. He's great in this. It's amazing. Also, we did get to see Martin. We we got to see Martin play the wackier before yeah, and for lack of a better term, he's a straight man, and but not really. But like he sort of he fits in those shoes of the straight man for this particular dynamic, mm-hmm. and he, he he wears those shoes as comfortably as one I've ever seen. Like you just think like he should have done more stuff like this. Yeah, like I I I, I mean God, just I never felt that like this is not a situation where it's hard to dark, where it's like you know. Francis Coppola losing his mind and, and before our eyes. Like, it's like you just felt that Hughes was in control of the movie, knew what he was doing, and had enough flexibility to, like, his commute, like, candy and, like, he knew when to let them, when to let them go, when to dial it back. And same thing with his, his, uh, stock company of actors who kept coming back for his movies. Like, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of his movies are in, are in here, and he uses them at just the minimum. And like they, every, God, I, there's not a sore note in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like I can't think of anybody who's saying that in a bad way. Even the little bit with the kid is fine. Like you know that thing where it's the, you know, he again I mentioned earlier about the kids sort of he was kind of getting into the kids sitcom kind of thing. You know, who is it? It's daddy. And little girl says do I do I like and he thinks oh well he's, he's getting into that kind of thing. It'd be like a scene out of like Wayne Payne. The Cosby Show, right? But he he knew what he was doing. Yeah, I I feel it, like this it, is it worked so beautifully. I feel like this is one of the only the one of the, I'm looking at Steve Martin's filmography now, and I'm like, I think this is the first time he really played a dad too. Because then after this, we get Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, yeah. and then Parenthood, and then for the throughout the '90s, he's like Father the Bride, and like you know, he's like dad mode. Yeah, Parenthood's the one that really pushed him bad mode. Yeah, he's one like a uh, Laura Graham, like him and Laura, like they always play parents, and you realize in real life, like they don't have. Well, actually, Steve just had a child not so long ago. He actually is a dad now, but for a guy his age to finally have a kid, like, aren't you already a dad? Like, you're, he just something about him screams dad. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, the father, the bride, and let's uh, the cheaper by the dozens. Like, I feel like he was just like the dad family comedy type of thing. For, simple and, twist, a simple twist of fate. Like yeah. he, he was adopted a baby in that one. Real burn and uh, tons of stuff. Oh my God. Absolutely. I'm sure he's, a, I'm sure he fathered some children in Bowfinger. He didn't know about. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, 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 the other thing I noticed too, is that in this movie, I feel like there's a real kind of contrast between the two characters as far as like, Sort of a little, it feels like a little bit of a social commentary, kind of of like artifice versus kind of, kind of authenticity. You know what I mean? Like Steve Martin is, you know, trying to keep up appearances. He's trying to, um, you know, he's wearing nice clothes. Yeah, exactly. He's he's, Sharp, he's he is a sharply dressed man. Right. He looks, yeah, he looks like, he looks like a million bucks in that movie. Yeah. Right. Whereas Dell is just like Dale, what you see is what you get. You know, like he's very authentic. He's very like he's the same person 
Well, unless he's trying to sell stuff, I guess. But for the most part, he's very authentic about who he that's, is. That's, yeah, that's what I like about him. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's got the very blue collar, white collar kind of atmosphere in both of them. Yeah, it, it works so well, man. Like again, I wish he was here to to tell us how like where it all came from. Let's see that four hour, that three hour cut. But maybe I, I, I at very least, maybe the latter will happen one day. But obviously, we'll never hear from him. Right. Fortunately. Yeah, I mean, even even on the bus when they're doing the sing along, uh, and and uh, Neil is yeah. just yeah singing a song nobody knows he that, does. and then yeah he's, yeah go ahead. Some, yeah yeah three oh my god that dad loves yeah and everyone yeah picking the most obscure like you know like so spoon up your ass kind of song I wish you would pick that song and then <laughs> it's like Flintstones <laughs> meet the Flintstones yeah. Well, Mom. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah, you know, Chatty Cat. I quote that movie, man. That's just a funny I, movie. I love that scene too because that's. I feel like after that scene, uh, where you know he's trying to sleep and he like blows up Adele, and then would you get the "I like me" kind of thing? Um, I feel like after that, like Neil still doesn't still has issues putting up with him. But there's a certain like the first level, the first um, the first wall breaks down, basically, like he starts yeah. to see Dell as a human being and, and treat him with a little bit more respect. And like, yeah, he's still annoyed by him. Yeah, they still fight and all that stuff. But it's like he's uh, yeah, he's not belittling him or coming across as like condescending in the same way. Yeah, I mean, like, and he say they, they he saves his ass on a couple of occasions, you know, from getting, you know, getting run over by the car. <laughs> yeah. I'll help you. You have to stick him up. No, Which, By the way, whose idea to do that? Oh my god, that is some like Jesus Christ. We got to. I spit on your grave territory for a minute there. Like, where did you come up with that idea? Oh my god. Uh, we have to. We sort of alluded to it earlier, but I feel like before we start wrapping up, we have to talk about the scene where he's trying to rent the car and it's not there. And he's stranded in the middle of nowhere, has to walk three miles. Obviously, I'm talking about Neil. And there's the great scene. I wish I could remember the actress's name, but it's the the um, Principal Rooney's assistant from Ferris Bueller. Yeah, we mentioned her earlier. I thought we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I love nice. that scene so much. That's another another standout. Where I don't appreciate. Oh, that's another one. I, scene I always imitate when she goes. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> I feel from that too. That's so funny. Yeah, I love her direction. That thing, like. Get him more annoyed, like just come kind of like random shit to talk about for Thanksgiving, and like Steve Martin is like even more and more as the scene progresses. I don't appreciate how you're talking to me right now. I don't appreciate being left in the fuck. God, did they actually say how many use how many says fuck in that scene? Like, did someone do a head count? I somebody probably did. I feel like it's someone had to. What is it? That, 15, that 20 totally, in that one minute or something? It's it's probably the most F-bombs per second of uh, of most movies, I, if, I would assume. Yeah, and like, that's the reason they got the R rating. And like, yeah, you know, worth there's, it. There's, there's, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, that's a great quote. Like, John Candy says like, in the press conference of the movie, he says, Yes, John says the F-bomb like uh, 20 times, yes, but it's only for one scene. You know, her, I, I, I fucked up the joke. Uh, Edie Book is the name. Oh, yeah. Is the, is the, yes, she was in Ferris Bueller. She was in that. I'm sure she was in the mother of John Hughes movies. I don't think she does She does much acting anymore. No, I don't no. think so. God bless her. But yeah, yeah. God, that's, that's so funny. Great. Yeah. It's like, I want a fucking car, and I want it right fucking now or something like that. I fucking, yeah. Like, and there's more F-bombs that I missed in that, in that line. But yeah, oh. God. And she's like, you're fucked. <laughs> she, yeah, she gets the, like, yourself. Yeah, she gets the last laugh. Exactly. It's like, yeah, God. He's, I don't know what it was. Like that moment, he just, he, he just fired off cylinders, man. He just something about him, just like boom, boom. Like something just lit a fire in his ass to like make that movie. And like it was so beautifully. Yeah. And, you know, great, but, you know, he only had to be great once. He was great several times, but he was greater in that moment. Planes, and automobiles, and I think it's the one that, as time goes on, is become the iconic one. Whether as we talk about the bullshit woke cult decided to reevaluate his work for better or for worse, and this works. But like everyone can agree, like that's the moment. Planes, trains, and automobiles. 
just like so it was everything that we love about Hughes and everything that it comes and encapsulated by as a writer, director, producer in that moment. And it was never better yeah. or since. Like, I so I come the same way that candy was never better. Way that was never better. Like it's just, it brought them together in such a way. And those guys have been great for it. But like, it's just that in that moment, man, and like they'll, they'll have that forever. And you know, I think of a great line. Um, there's a great paraphrase. There's a great line. Uh, Ray Bolter was a uh, scarecrow in the wizard of Oz. He talked about what was it like being there, and he said, "Well, you know, I didn't make much money." You know, he said, "You know, I was paid okay under Oz, but I didn't get any residuals for the movie." He said, "You know, I got something better than residuals. at immortality. I will forever be this. Forever be the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz. I will live on for ages and be any residuals ever." And I feel like that way with uh, uh, with uh, Martin and Candy and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yeah. I no, I hundred percent agree. I think it, there's a certain. It's very rare that you get that that perfect combination of filmmaker and and uh, lead performers, and I think there's something transcendent, particularly about this movie. Um, before we start wrapping up, is there anything that we haven't mentioned about planes, trains, and automobiles that you want to make sure that we uh, cover? I'm, I feel like we kind of covered everything. I'm trying to think. Is there any song or anything like that? I. Once we got recording, I might come up on something, but I thought we kind of covered everything. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm think, I, think, I think we covered them all. Great movie. Yeah, great movie. See it. If you haven't, if you, hopefully if you're Please. listening to this, you've seen it. And if not, go watch it again. It's it's one of those movies that uh, it stands up to incessant rewatches, as you mentioned, become kind of a holiday standard at this point for that reason. So. Definitely check that out. So, um, Jamie Williams, if there's nothing else, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? Oh, Lord. Uh, go on the cesspool gutter that is Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Film nerd Jamie, listen to my rambles because Twitter is a terrible place. I'm not going to lie. I say that as someone who goes there, but, like, it ain't good. It brings up some people. Yeah. But it's always – but it's fun. Like, it's, it's fun in the way. It depends how much you allow yourself to be carried away by the discourse, I think, one way or another. Right. But it's all, yeah, it's fun to dip That's into. <laughs> don't That's get true. don't get lost in, in, in film Twitter or any other form of Twitter because it's... Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, it's it's dangerous. Oh, my God. You will never, ever want to get out of that <laughs> you get lost. Well, Jamie, this has been an awesome conversation uh, about one of the one of the best comedies ever made, I'd say, as well. Uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on at some point. I will actually, you know what? I will actually write you down as a potential for Return to Oz at some point because I think that would be a really good oh, conversation. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll have to pre-watch that one. I, I feel like I'll pick something obscure. I'll, I'll, we'll I think find we're gonna go for extra. I think we're going to go for extra to the Heretic next time. I think we're really, like, what? <laughs> I don't think we're going to have the same conversation. <laughs> <laughs> that movie. Boy. Oof. I love me some John Borman, but what were you thinking, buddy? Like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to rewrite history on that one, buddy. You shit the bed. And you made my favorite movie of all time. And I, I not say you shit the bed. Nice. All right. Well, I will, we'll have to have that conversation next time. So thank you so much yeah. for coming thank on. You. I appreciate it, Jamie. Thank you, sir. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-O-K-E-D.